The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning we intend to complete the book of Jonah. So chapter 1, we call Jonah running from God. Chapter 2, from crying out to God from the depths of the sea. Chapter 3, turning to God, as did the city of Nineveh. Chapter 4 was angry at God, which is Jonah's response to the Lord's great compassion and grace. And here's what we want to do today. Imagine a drawing in which you have pencilers. They sketch how they want the drawing to look. And then later somebody comes in, perhaps, who is the colorer. And they fill in radiant color to the sketch that's already been given. I want us to see today the sketch of the book of Jonah as a whole. What truth is God communicating to us from the book of Jonah as a whole? What's the sketch? And then I want to show from other scriptures that I'll refer to how the sketch given in the theology of Jonah is only colored in in the rest of the Bible. Nothing's erased. Not a whole lot is added, actually. It's just coloring in the incredible truth that is in the book of Jonah. And I do think that the main contribution of the book of Jonah is fulfilled in chapter 4. Almost all scholars agree that Jonah is a literary satire that builds on blocks until it climaxes in chapter 4, especially verses 6 through 11. And the climax is about what God is like. What kind of God is God? What is God's heart like? And I believe the point of Jonah is to show that God is a loving God. And all the words that are used, compassion, pity, mercy, relenting, when you combine them all, grace, they fall under the bucket of God's love. So the title of today's sermon is Grasping God's Love. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll want to open at page 921. Right about there, you'll be near Jonah chapter 4. We'll spend most time there, but today, honestly, will be very different from the preceding sermons. Normally, as you all know very well, I preach one paragraph at a time, just knuckling into words. But today, because we're looking at the whole book, you may have to flip a little or just kind of refer to chapter 4. That'll be the main place we refer to. But we'll try to draw the whole sketch together this morning. And see what the coloring is about grasping God's love. One author wrote this. The primary purpose of the book of Jonah is to engage readers into reflection of the character of God. And in self-reflection to the degree that our character reflects his. So that we might become vehicles of God's compassionate love to a world that he so deeply cares about. I think that's right. And I read that after I wrote my outline. (laughs) So my outline this morning, part one, grasping God's love in his very character, his heart. And then part two, how his heart ought to be our heart, God's love in our lives. All right. By far the emphasis will be part one. So if you have a bulletin, you have the notes. If you didn't get a bulletin, the notes are really, really easy. Part one, God's love in his character. Here, Here are the three things we're going to look at. When God loves the undeserving, why God loves the undeserving, and how God loves the undeserving. Okay, so very simple to follow along with. Beginning with number one, grasping when 
God loves the undeserving. When God loves the undeserving. We went through Jonah. We were in chapter 2 when I gave this definition of grace. I said grace is favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. What I want to show us again through the stenciling, the sketch of the truth of the book of Jonah is that God loves when people are not deserving of it. God loves when actually we are least deserving of it. In fact, Jonah cries out to God when he is in the lowest position, literally, of his entire life. And Nineveh cries out to God when they are at the moment of judgment. Remember Jonah 1 verse 2, God said, their evil has risen up to me. And the message was 40 days. This is like the final warning. And yet it's at that moment that God gives love. This means that God must love when we are least deserving. This is exactly what makes Jonah so angry. And yet an incredible love, God is patient with even a believer who's exploding in a tirade to him. So here's the point I want us to catch. God loves when we are not deserving of it. If we can accept that, then I want to build out some implications of that. But if the sketch of Jonah is that God loves when we are least deserving, let me give you some coloring from the rest of the Bible that only fills in that sketch. We read John 3.16 this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or think of Romans 5.6. When we were without strength, when we were powerless, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person they would dare to die. But verse 8, but God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So notice the sketch of Jonah, that God loves us when we are least deserving, is only colored in by the rest of the Bible. God loves us when we are least deserving. I fear, though, that many Christians have lost that simple truth. They start to believe that maybe God has loved me when some condition has been met. Something has been done that now caused him to love me. He didn't want to love me, but then because this was done, I guess he had to. For example, some people actually think that God loves us because Jesus died for us. That is not correct. Jesus died for us because God loves us. You see how important the difference is. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. A conditionalism of any kind creates a condition in the way we view God himself, a layer of distortion to his character. If any condition must be met for God to be gracious, then the gospel is now presented as God finding reason grudgingly to care for us. Let me now continue to quote uh, Sinclair. He writes, True, the Father does not love us because we are sinners, but he does love us even though we are sinners. He loved us before Christ died for us. It is because he loves us that Christ died for us. So we must never confuse the truth that our sins are forgiven only because of the death and resurrection of Christ with a very different notion that God loves us only because of the death and resurrection of Christ. I want to tease out why it's so important to understand that God loves us before the death and resurrection of Christ. And the best way I know how to do that 
is to use a pop culture reference. So if you've never seen Saving Private Ryan, spoiler alerts ahead. Okay. In that film, here's the crux of the plot. There is a soldier in a condition of great peril, and his brothers have already died in World War II. And so soldiers are sent to risk their lives to rescue this other brother so that his mom does not receive another letter of another one of her sons dying. Now, the soldiers really don't want to do this. They're not interested in risking their lives to rescue this other person. And everything they have to go to to rescue this person is devastating. In fact, many of their fellow soldiers' lives are lost. And so at the key pivotal point of the film, Tom Hanks' character looks up at Matt Damon's character and says this to him, earn this. Everything that we've sacrificed for you, everything that we've given up for you is so that you will earn all the sacrifice that's come. You see, his point is very important. We didn't love you before, but now that a sacrifice has been made, you ought to live up to it. Now imagine the crushing weight of that. So we're not surprised that the final scene of the film is a now fully aged Matt Damon at the gravestone of Tom Hanks asking his wife, did I earn it? Now, brother or sister, if you think that God has only loved you after Christ died for you, then you will think that you have to earn it. And the crushing weight of your life will be, how can I live up to the sacrifice that was made for me? Some of our hymns actually convey incorrectly that theology. They'll say things like, only a debtor, he paid it all, I'll try to pay my best, maybe I'll live up to the grace that he's given me, which implies that God didn't love me. But then when a sacrifice was made, maybe I can live up to it. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible repeatedly teaches that God loves because that's who he is. And he loves when we are least deserving. And that is why he sent his son. And his son loved us in the same way. So God's love is not based on a condition that has been accomplished even at the cross his love precedes it. Further, let me, I know I'm doing lots of theological heavy lifting this morning. One other uh, razor sharp point though. God's love is not conditioned on something he saw promising in me. God did not look through the channels of time and see us and say, you know, they look promising. And therefore, I will demonstrate my love on them. If you think that God has only loved you because he saw something promising in you, that will subtly corrupt your complete understanding of God's love. Again, I'll quote Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, the Pharisees were men who believed in the holiness of God and in his law, and grace was a big idea to them. But the Pharisees only believed in conditional grace. At the end of the day, they believed God loved them because of something in them. So listen this morning. Have you started to think that God must have loved you because he saw how you would respond to him or how you would steward his initial grace or how well you would live after coming to Christ? If so, then you flip the cart and the horse. And let me tell you what that'll do to your relationship with God. It'll do the two things that are actually sketched for us in the book of Jonah. 
And don't miss these two. If you think God has loved you because of something promising he saw in you, then you will believe it is your right to challenge God and to censoriously condescend against others. Those two will always follow. Think about it, though. Honestly, friends, do you think God looked down from heaven and saw Nineveh and thought, I want some stock in them. (laughs) That looks like a promising city. I mean, they look like they're worthy of an investment. He'd already prophesied that in less than 50 years, they would come and take the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. Nothing about them is promising. All right, do you think God looked from heaven and saw Jonah and thought, that's a first overall draft pick. I mean, that's who I want. That's the prophet. I'm going to invest all. Come on. Surely, God has never looked at any of us and thought, that's promising. God is not a venture capitalist hoping that it'll work out. God is so gracious and good that he loves because of who he is intrinsically. And if you catch that, it will humble you and you will not challenge God. As long as you think you're a junior partner, you will challenge God. Because if all he did was give you a venture capitalist start, then surely you can complain to him. You can push back. You can say, no, I don't think I'll do that. No, I I have some say in this too. If you understand it's all of grace, you won't do that. And if you understand it's all of grace, you can't censoriously condescend on anybody else. Because you know there's nothing in you that is the reason God has been so loving to you. So there's no root for room for pride or arrogance. Since grace is not based on anything in us, since grace is not based on anything we bring to the table, then the only way we could ever respond to God is through faith. What else could we do? I mean, if it's all of grace, and to quote Jonathan Edwards, the only thing we contributed is the sin that made our salvation necessary, then the only way we could ever respond to God is through faith. There is no other way. Faith is the only proper way to be the channel or instrument or straw to the source and power, which is grace. And grace is summed up in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon wrote an excellent book, All of Grace. I reread it this week. It's fantastic. Highly commended to you. Here's what he said in the book about faith. Indeed, it is a very curious thing, this whole matter of believing. For people do not get much help by trying to believe. (laughs) Believing does not come by trying. It is not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ in whom faith trusts. See, that's why we're saved through faith, because it's all the power and the grace of God. Romans 4 is so clear. What does the scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteous. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Spurgeon gives a great illustration in the book. He says that faith is a simple act like a child receiving an apple from his parent 
because the parent simply holds it out and promises to give him the apple if the child will come for it. The belief and the receiving are related to the apple, but they make up precisely the same faith which eternal salvation. The child's hand to the apple is what faith is to the salvation. Our hand does not make the apple, form the apple, or contribute to the apple's value. It simply reaches out to realize our need for it and the good grace that offers it to us. Let me say, by way of reminder, brother or sister, if right now you're thinking, well, Josh, true, we need faith, but that's just at the beginning. And then after that, we kind of earn our keep. But Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 is so clear that the gospel is the power of God to salvation revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. Our whole relationship with God is through faith. All right, let me anticipate one more objection someone might have. You could argue, Josh, no, you're not, you're you're wrong. The reason God is gracious to people is because they turn from their sin. You could argue that. You could say, no, no, no. God doesn't give grace because he's gracious. God gives grace because people turn from their sin. Let me push back at that objection. Um, Then why is he so good to Jonah? How well is Jonah doing at turning? Not well. But further, actually what the text says is not that. And this is where reading the Bible is so helpful. Uh, If you have Jonah open, will you look in Jonah 3? And I want to show you something in verse 5 and then something in verse 8. Jonah 3, I'd like to show you something in verse... Well, let's begin in verse 4. Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now look in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Then, verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. All right, look look down to verse 8. This is the king's decree. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Again, calling out in trust first. Then let them turn from their evil way and from the violence and evil in his hands. Actually, the logical sequence in the Bible is someone trusts God because of hope in his grace. And then I know flowing out of that chronologically simultaneously, but logically distinct, is the turning from sin. So it is trust in God's grace that causes us to reach out for it. Turning from sin is a manifestation of that. I'll quote Sinclair, not the whole sermon, I promise, but, but one more. He says, while we cannot divide faith and repentance, we do distinguish them carefully. Faith grasps the mercy of God, then the life of repentance is inaugurated at his, as its fruit. He's, he's correct. The impetus that brings us to God is trust that he is gracious. The growth out of that is the turning from self and the turning from sin. Many theologians, truth, of course, is not sourced in theologians. It's sourced in the Bible. But I think many theologians have been good channels to Scripture in cementing this point. John Calvin makes the point clearly. Edward Fisher makes the point clearly. I'll quote at least Calvin. He writes, The only thing that can cause us to turn to God is the persuasion that God has grace for us. 
So the impetus of receiving salvation is confidence in grace that is undeserved. And then we can turn. So here's my conclusion. God does not love because people turn. People turn because they know God loves. This is vital to understand. So that we know that God is a good father. Isaiah 45, 22 says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Do you see the logic? You can only turn if you trust that he would save. So the coloring in of the rest of the Bible only fills in the sketch that's already been outlined in the theology of Jonah. If you wonder, can I turn enough? The question itself is misunderstanding. The fulcrum of salvation is not my turning, but God's grace to save. Again, Spurgeon is worth quoting, considering that he was saved from Isaiah 45, 22. He writes, I hear one person cry, I can't repent sufficiently. Remember that no man who truly repents is ever satisfied with the extent of his repentance. The main point of the turning of the heart from sin to Christ is to trust that Christ died for the ungodly. So that's number one, when God loves us. God loves us when we are undeserving. But now, number two, let's grasp why God loves the undeserving. And if you have Jonah 4 in front of you, let's look here in verse 1. Jonah 4, verse 1. Okay, when does God love us? When we are least deserving. Why does God love us? Because of who he is. Jonah 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly that that God had forgiven Nineveh. And Jonah was angry, and he prayed to the Lord God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew. And how did he know what he's about to say? Because God had revealed it in Exodus 34. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, what, what Jonah hates in this moment is actually the foundational best news that there is, that God loves because that's who he is. That's what he is. God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. But now God, at the end of the chapter, makes that same point, but makes it even a little bit stronger. Not only does God love because that's who he is, God loves because he's attached himself to what he has made. So look in Jonah 4, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity, that's the word compassion, you care, you grieve over the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Please notice that in verse 10, God is not merely correcting Jonah for being petty. He's correcting him for not having his pity, his compassion on what he has made. God is telling Jonah, you don't care about people and I've crafted them more carefully than you ever did with this plant. So I want to press this point. God cares because that's who he is. God also cares because he has attached himself intricately to his creation. 
God cares about everything that he has made. And contra many of our founding fathers' deism, God's care was not just initial. Think of what David says in Psalm 139 about his own conception. In verse 13 and 14, David says, You formed my inward parts. This was not the creation week. This is much after it. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. In Isaiah 19 verse 25, God calls Assyria his handiwork. God has concern for everything he has made. He has chosen to attach himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God cares about making sure the birds are fed. God cares about making sure the lilies have clothing in their radiance. I'm blessed to have all these children at home, and one of the things they ask me to do often is to throw the ball with them. And what I've learned is that they would want to throw the ball years after I'm done throwing the ball. <laughs> They can throw and catch and throw and catch and throw and catch, and I'm done. And they want to keep throwing and catch and throwing. Because something happens when you're an adult. You lose wonder in the basics. Now, G.K. Chesterton said this about creation. He said, because children have abounding vitality, they want things repeated and unchanged. They say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. Is it possible God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes daisies separately but never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. This is essentially what God is saying in Jonah 4, verse 10. I intricately made everyone and everything, and I love it. God loves because that's his nature. And he loves because he has attached himself to his creation. Older philosophers refused to believe this. They spoke of love of benevolence, which is an act of the will. You don't want to do it, but you make yourself do it. And they spoke of love of attachment. And unsurprisingly, the Greek Stoic philosophers believed that God could not have love of attachment. They called his love Apathia, so as the negative, pathos is attachment or feeling. They said God surely can't have attachment because we are mere mortals. And yet what God actually says in Jonah 4.10 and 11 is he is attachment even to Nineveh. God has chosen to attach himself to those of us who don't deserve it. On the cross in Luke chapter 23 Jesus is actively being crucified. And while the people are gambling over his clothing, he says this from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have they asked for his forgiveness? Have they earned his forgiveness? 
They're gambling over his clothing, and he's extending his compassion and mercy. He's moved to them. He's moved for them, and he says they know not what they do. Does that phrase not look familiar in Jonah 4, verse 11? Should not I pity that great city who do not know their right hand from their left? Never let someone tell you that Old Testament God is mean and New Testament Jesus is nice. This is the compassion of God's transcendent, immutable, eternal, unchanging character. God has always had mercy, grace, and compassion on those of us who do not know what we are doing, which is all of us. God has moved towards us, not because of who we are, but because of his great heart. The Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield, who's just a brilliant gift to the church, wrote an excellent essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he took every single occurrence in the New Testament of Jesus' emotions. What he found was by far the most common emotion listed was that Jesus was moved with compassion from the depths of his heart. Jesus' compassion moved him towards us, though we don't know what we are doing. Jesus' compassion moved him to the cross, though we don't deserve his salvation. Jesus' compassion caused us to caused him to touch the unclean, reach out to those who were filthy, and extend his full forgiveness and grace. So when does God love? When we are least deserving. Why does God love? Because that is who he is and he's attached himself to his creation. But now the third one, how does God love? Well, the sketch in Jonah gives us a lot of examples. He speaks, he commissions, he's patient, he relents. He has mercy and judgment in perfect harmony. But I think if I was to put it in one sentence, how does God love? Here's the answer. He rescues sinners from the self-inflicted consequences of our sin. Jonah's drowning because of his stubborn rejection of God. Nineveh is facing 40 days in which they will be overthrown because of their persistence in violence and wickedness. In other words, these consequences are self-inflicted. And yet God saves sinners from our self-inflicted consequences. Don't you love Romans 6? Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is saving sinners from our self-inflicted consequences. The sketching of Jonah is only colored in by the rest of the Bible. It's not changed. This is why the high water, well, that's a bad pun. The high mark of the book is Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves because he takes pleasure in it. My favorite example of this in the New Testament is a passage you know so well. I bet I can just give you some of the cliff notes of it. It's Luke 19, verses 4 through 10. I'm just showing you how the Bible colors in what's already sketched in the theology of Jonah. It's when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus. And if you trace the plot well, you'll see it's at the exact sequence I've been trying to show you. You see, Jesus first shows God's love when he says publicly to Zacchaeus, I am going to your house today. So notice the first thing is God's love going towards somebody who does not deserve it. The second thing is Zacchaeus receives him. And as he receives God's love, 
he then turns from his previous ways and he returns fourfold all that he had stolen from other people. When that happens, Jesus calls it this. Today, salvation has come to this house. So did you see the sequence? God loves, man receives, and man turns from self to God. God calls that salvation. And then as if he was afraid we would miss the point, Jesus then said in summary, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. See, the moving is from God. God is moving to rescue sinners from our self-inflicted consequences. I know that every speck on space and time has things about God that we don't like. On our speck of space and time, Westerners in the 21st century, we tend to not like that God judges sin. All the friends that I've had who are from Eastern countries really don't like that God forgives sinners. I've always wished the two of us could spend more time together. (laughs) Because putting those two false views on top of the text would actually help us see what the scriptures hold in harmony. In harmony, the scriptures actually show that God is a complex character of both mercy and judgment. One author who is not from our western part of the world points out this. You have to have had a pretty comfortable life to not want a God who punishes sin. In his homeland, he saw genocide, and so here's what he wrote. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of a thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. He concludes, in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea of a God who does not judge will invariably die. He's totally right. It's a very first world problem to want a God who doesn't judge sin. Actually, God is very clear in the Bible that he does judge them. That he's absolutely able to call into account all evil. And because he is perfectly holy and righteous, he does call into account all evil. The shock of the story is how he does it. So here's God, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly able to see what is wrong. And here's God who also, in his own very essence, as I just explained, is loving and gracious and merciful. So how will he be good enough to judge evil and good enough to grant mercy? And of course, this is not seen clearly until the cross. There at the cross, God is good enough to judge evil by crushing it, but he's good enough to grant mercy by choosing to absorb it himself as his son Jesus takes it. There, mercy and justice are perfectly harmonious. I want to be clear with you this morning, though, that that is something that must be received. If you were to do today what we already read in John 3, verse 18, whoever does not receive is condemned. You should be certain of this this morning. If your attitude is, no, I don't need Jesus, then, friend, you're already in a perilous position. Because God does not overlook, tolerate, or clear guilty. And if you think, well, maybe my good will outweigh my bad. No, friend, God is just. Your mixed attempts at being good are never good enough. But God forgives, accepts, adopts, and rescues sinners at their lowest point because his son has gone even lower. From heaven to earth, he sought us 
and from earth to the cross. Ernest Gordon, in his memoir of being a prisoner in Japanese World War II, tells a true story of how at the end of a day of forced manual labor, one of the guards counted the shovels and one shovel was missing. So all those who were in that concentration camp were lined up. They were told that whoever had stolen the shovel would be executed. So one person stepped forward and said, I did it. He did not open his mouth in protestation. He just offered himself, and he was immediately executed. When they all went back to the camp, they counted the shovels again, and it turned out all the shovels had been there all along. The man had sacrificed himself to save the others. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become our curse for us. Some people mistakenly denigrate Jesus and treat him as if he's a victim of divine child abuse. This has gained in popularity recently. People argue, well, well, God must be a horrible father and Jesus must be a weak child if he's to die on the cross. This denigrates Jesus, his divinity. He is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all in agreement for this incredible plan of salvation. It also just overlooks very clear passages like Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, where Jesus says, the Bible says, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Or John 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Or Hebrews 12, which the Bible says, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. The Bible actually clearly indicates that God loves sinners, and Jesus loves sinners, and that's why Jesus took our place on the cross for any who trust in him. All right, so that was all the first half. The second half will be shorter. (laughs) God's love because of who he is. But now the second part, let's drive it home for us. If God has that kind of a heart, should that heart not also pervade his people? Jonah is a satirical contrast Here's a God who's so good that he sends his love to people like Nineveh. And here's a prophet who's so petulant that he resists the Heavenly Father's compassion. Are we the same, though? And we have a Heavenly Father who's so good, he burns for Raleigh. Burden for the people you work with. Grieves over your relatives. Do you you burn for them? Do you cry for them? Do you appeal to them? Do you pray for them? Do you share truth with them? Do you long for them? This is what he has sent you to do. The the end of Jonah 4, the very, very climax where God sits Jonah down, as it were, is meant to show his character versus ours. Ephesians 5, 1 does say, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So God's heart to pursue people is to be his people's heart to pursue those who need him. I do want to again remind us that that does, according to God, mean pursuing people in places of need. Some of you know this story. 
I won't spend too much on it. I don't remember the exact year, maybe six or seven years ago. I'm reading through the Bible just in my own kind of sequential reading, and I come across Jonah 4.11. And at this point, I've been pastoring in Michigan for years, and I'm in a rural area, and I've met a lot of the people there. And Jonah 4.11 hits me with an extra weight that I believe is from the Holy Spirit. God is saying, should I not care about that great city in which there are so many people densely together? Months later, because I was just reading sequentially, I was in Mark I believe it's chapter 6, verse 34. And there the Bible says this. Jesus was moved to compassion when he saw the great crowd. Same adjective, great. Same concept, densely packed people. And the Holy Spirit started to work in me a desire to be willing to go where there are densely packed people who need Christ. And as I was finishing my program here at Southeastern, we would come to Raleigh And God started to burden my heart for one of our American cities that's becoming 93 souls a day more packed. And where I think the need of Christ is dense. God cares about cities. I know there are sinful ways to care for cities. When Abram and Lot made a decision, Lot chose Sodom and Gomorrah for sinful reasons. But throughout the Bible, God actually seems to indicate a great concern for the city's welfare. And the gospel truth to reverberate through it. About 200 years after Jonah, the southern kingdom, Judah, will be taken into captivity in Babylon. And while they're in Babylonia, their desire is to get as far away from all these decadent people as they can. And then in Jeremiah 29, God writes a letter to his exiles. And in it, he says this. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Jeremiah 29 verse 4. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons, have daughters. Multiply there. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's desire actually is for the city to be blessed by his people and for the gospel light to shine there. And friends, that means we have to actually thread a a middle ground. On the one hand, we don't long for the city for the reasons Lot longed for the city. But on the other hand, we don't leave the city in a way that we hate the city. We don't put our hopes there. We also don't flee it. We don't put our hopes there because just a few verses later, God says this in Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You will dwell well in the city of man when you are secured in the city of God. Jesus then wants us to see the sketch of Jonah. God cares about the people around us. And the best way, I think, that Jesus fills in this sketch is with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Think of this, friends. About 700-ish years after the book of Jonah, the Pharisees had read the Bible so badly that they asked this question out loud. Well, who is my neighbor? You would think after you've read Jonah, there'd be a pretty obvious answer to that question. But apparently, it had been forgotten. And so Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, with the story of the Good Samaritan. 
The story of the Good Samaritan is the exact opposite of Jonah. Jonah, the prophet who can't stand people who are from a different background. The Good Samaritan, who ironically, unlike all the other people who pass a Jew who's on the side of the road, the Good Samaritan overcomes religious and ethnic difference, overcomes difference of value, and gives love, care, grace, and patience to the person in need. All that the story of the Good Samaritan is doing is coloring in the penciled sketch of the book of Jonah. But the lesson is that easily forgotten. Throughout the Bible, we're told actually to love our enemies, to shalom them, to greet them, to care for them. And yet we constantly need the reminder of Jonah. I'd like to now give you some very practical pastoral recommendations. These are not thus saith the Lord's, but just practical recommendations. Since we know God's heart, is that we love those around us, even those with whom we have difference of values. Here's a practical recommendation I have for you. I want to encourage you to restrict your access to the news. Over the last several weeks, I've talked to many brothers and sisters who were in great bottled-up anger. And often when I talk to them, what what I find is that they're watching the news all the time. And I've recommended to them what my own practice is. My own practice is to watch the news, or read it, preferably, just once a week. In doing so, it it keeps me from from doing what I think the news does not do. Um, Let me say it this way. The way news is reported in our current moment is not intended to help you love other people. It's not intended to help you love those with whom you have different values. It's actually intended... For you to have more strife and conflict with those with whom you have different values. So I want to encourage you to consider asking God to shape your heart. And I know that in different life seasons, it feels like we have more discretionary time. And the news can sometimes feel like something substantive with which to take part. I just want to encourage you to know that God still has a purpose for you even greater than that. God still wants to use your life. That's why you're still here. So ask him, how, God, would you want to use me, even with those with whom I have difference of values? When I moved to Raleigh, I noticed a difference of values almost right away. My family and I, we all went for a bicycle ride. And as we were riding our bicycles, someone several houses away, maybe 50 yards, yelled very loudly, they need a helmet, talking about my children. (laughs) And I almost yelled back, you need a life, you know. But I couldn't follow that with, um, and come get it at 2100 Noble Road on Sunday morning at at 1030. (laughs) It's just the simplest things that can reveal that we have a difference of values with someone else. And in that moment, you can just even subliminally draw an us versus them line. This is the line that God overcomes, though. This is the line that Christ crossed when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we catch this, it will change the way we live. In 2004, a Dutch filmmaker, Theo van Gogh, was killed by radical Muslims in the Netherlands. That caused all this reciprocal hatred. Islamic schools were bombed. Christians were attacked. There was all this strife. And then a minister named Reverend Key Sabrandi did something radical, though he was a very conservative 
person in a very open and free society. He walked to his neighborhood mosque and he knocked on the door. And to the shock of all the Muslims who were inside, he announced that he would stand guard outside the mosque every night until the attacks ceased. And so for the days and weeks that followed, other people joined him and they encircled the mosque sitting there in guard so that no more attacks would happen. They sat there for more than three months. And in that time, no more attacks occurred. After this, the news were so curious, what would have caused Sabrandi to do this? They first asked him, what, did you have some sort of personal experience that changed your feelings? And he said this, no, I, I have no past friendships or dialogue with Muslims before now. They said, well, was it the secular or liberal values of, of Dutch that caused you to have this kind of a heart? And he said, no, the multicultural appeals for a celebration had little pull on my heart. So, so, so what caused you to do this? And here's what his answer was. Jesus told me to love my neighbor. That's it. See, the, the problem that Jonah has that doesn't get exposed until the very end is it's no longer God that is God to him. But his protection, his patriotism, his values, things that are not bad things, but they've now become the ultimate thing. The self-sacrifice of Christ will stand out because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So this morning, let's close in how we should respond. First way, I want to encourage you to respond this morning. If you've not received the love of Christ yourself, what you ought to know that Nineveh hoped in is that there is a God who loves you. That's why he sent this invitation to you this very morning. That's why he sent his son. And I have great news for you. There is no condition you must meet. You just put out your hand and receive the apple. You open your heart and receive Christ. It's an urgent decision though, friend. Paul said in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has appointed a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And of this, he has given us all assurance by raising him from the dead. God is talking about you and me. God is inviting us to receive him. But know this, friend. There is a day where all of us will be examined by his perfection. We cannot pass that examination unless Christ has covered us. Come to him today. Jonah said something in Jonah 2, verse 4, that reminds me of the grace that we have. As Jonah was sinking because of his own sin, he said this in Jonah 2, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah knew in that moment that the suffering that he had in, incurred because of his own selfish sin caused him to be separated from God's favor and from God's Sight. Don't you see at the cross when Jesus takes our sin and then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, he's separated from God's sight because he has Jonah's sin and, and mine and ours. Jesus is buried under the willows of God's wrath, driven from God's sight. But only so that we would never have to be. 
because he says it is finished. And God raised him from the dead to be reconciled perfectly and eternally. So this morning, receive that through faith in his all of grace. But brothers and sisters, ought we not to have the kind of pursuing love that characterizes our Father? Let that be the case in our church. Let me pray together with you this morning. God, we, we, we have different gifts. We have different personalities. We have different weaknesses. But I do pray that everyone who is here who is a Christian will care to be part of a community of faith where we make an effort to be channels of the grace of God to everyone around us especially those with whom we naturally disagree and have dissimilar values. Move in us, Lord, the compassionate care that you have for all that you have made, regardless of what our perception of them is. Because your perception is what matters. And you have revealed that you have compassion and pity on all that your hands have wrought. Lord, I do pray specifically that at Emmanuel, we will be a bridge to all peoples to bring them to God. Those in our neighborhoods, those in our families, those in our workplace, those in Five Points, those in Raleigh. May people see that there is a sacrificial grace that is like Jesus that cannot be explained in any other way. Lord, perhaps someone today has kind of pushed away your grace. You've reached out to them, you've loved them, Even from your word this morning, perhaps your spirit is pressing somebody's heart to just receive you, to quit running. Lord, help them to stop, to be still, and to know the grace of God that brings salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us now to remember him well. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.